Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. And welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Ethnic cleansing, or what its Israeli proponents call transfer, has been an intrinsic part of Zionism's history. It It has remained an essential feature of Israeli political life up to the present. Joining us today again, is to explore some of the longer history in the current movement moment, so, sorry, is Muin Rabani, a specialist on Palestinian affairs, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the contemporary Middle East. Rabani is co-editor of Jadalia Ezine and a contributing editor to of Middle East Report. Muin Rabani, uh, thank you back again. I want to thank you up front for giving us your time. So well, um, welcome back. I would thank you, and I want to thank you up front as well. It's a pleasure to be with you again. You know, Muin Rabani, in your recent piece that appeared on the Mondo Weiss website, you wrote that, quote, ethnic cleansing transfer is intrinsic to Zionist and later Israeli policy towards the Palestinians from the very outset, and that Israel is now using the Hamas attack of October 7th as not only a threat, but also as an opportunity to carry out a long-standing ambition to push Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip. In order to provide our listeners some context, let's start with that long-standing ambition, some of the history perhaps uh, dating back to the very early days of the Zionist movement. Sure. Um, I think that's uh, uh, very interesting and in the current context also a very pertinent question. Um, I think there are two misconceptions here. The first is that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine is a project of the Israeli extreme right, um, and that it doesn't really have much purchase within mainstream Israeli or previously um, mainstream uh, Zionist circles. The second misconception is that um, one of the original slogans of the Zionist movement, uh, starting in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century, which is really when when this um, uh, movement came into being, one of one of their um, best known slogans was to refer to Palestine as a land without a people for a people without a land, and this has functioned as a sort of alibi in the sense that um, we're told to believe that uh, most uh, Zionists and that most of the Zionist leadership genuinely believed that Palestine uh, was empty and they never had an intention um, to displace and dispossess and ethnically cleanse uh, the Palestinians from Palestine. Um, And I should add there's also a third misconception, which is that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine the Nakba of 1948, really wasn't ethnic cleansing. It was more the exigencies of war. It was a product of war, not design, as um, one of the best-known Israeli historians, Benny Morris, who's looked into it, um, uh, concluded. So what are the facts? Well, if we go back and look at the documentary record, we find out that from the very outset, um, the Zionist leadership, had a very clear and precise understanding of the demographic realities um, that existed in Palestine. In other words, on the one hand, um, they understood very well that Palestine was a populated country or territory or however uh, you want to call it. And at the same time, um, given that Zionism aspired to establish a Jewish state and that to the Zionist leadership, a Jewish state, meant an entity 
in which um, uh, the Jewish community would hold political, demographic, and territorial supremacy, that meant, for all intents and purposes, by definition, that you had to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians because if you didn't remove the Palestinians from Palestine, you could not transform it into a Jewish state, or more accurately, I think, would be a Zionist state. And so we have a whole series of statements, of proposals, of initiatives, going back to the 1890s, to the very origins of the Zionist movement that demonstrate both a realization of reality and a determination to change it. So we can start, for example, with Theodore Herzl, who is um, uh, universally seen as the preeminent founder of the modern um, Zionist movement. And in his diaries, he wrote, and it's available, um, it's been published uh, for decades. Um, he, he said, and I'm quoting the first part of it verbatim, um, we shall have to spirit the penniless population um, across the borders um, and find employment and opportunities for it in other lands. In other words, uh, these Palestinians would have to be removed from Palestine. Um, after uh, Zionist, uh, or rather Jewish immigration to Palestine commenced in greater numbers in the aftermath of the First World War and um, the beginning of the British Mandate in Palestine, you see a growing realization by not only um, uh, Zionist leaders in Europe, but by um, the leaders of the Zionist movement in Palestine about the necessity of removing the Palestinians from Palestine in order to fulfill the aspirations of Zionist statehood. So you have um, David Ben-Gurion, for example, who was Israel's uh, first uh, prime minister um, and is, is best known as the founder of the state of Israel, saying in a letter to his son, um, we will expel the Arabs and take their place. So. Um, that's at the level of, of statements and rhetoric, which I think very clearly demonstrates intention. But that's not enough. I think you also need to demonstrate that they weren't just aspiring to these things, but they were actually seeking to achieve them. Well, and here the evidence is, is once again um, uh, overwhelming. Um, beginning in the late 1930s and early 1940s, you had a... Um, uh, institution or an organization established. It was called the Transfer Committee. And here I'd like to point out that what we today refer to as ethnic cleansing or was previously known as mass expulsion in um, uh, the, the Zionist movement um, up until today has always referred to this as transfer. And so you had a transfer committee, which was headed by a um, prominent um, official of the Jewish National Fund named Yosef uh, Weitz. Uh, he later became known as Mr. Transfer. And he was really obsessed um, with ethnically cleansing Palestine. And his diaries, uh, subsequently published, are littered with sentiments such as, we shall have to get rid of all of them. Not one tribe, not one village can remain. We have to make sure that once we get rid of them, they don't come back and so on. And although the transfer committee was not a formal institution, it was a very influential one. And um, uh, Weitz and his two associates, um, in fact, presented a detailed proposal to David Ben-Gurion um, in 1948. Uh, it was kind of a um, comprehensive plan um, to implement the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And, and Benny Morris, the Israeli historian who I was referring to previously, makes very clear in his landmark publication from 1988, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Question, that Ben-Gurion um, not only read this proposal, but concurred with it and authorized its implementation. And then there are also all kinds of military plans, the best known of which is Plan Dalet, uh, Plan D, 
in Hebrew, and the preeminent Palestinian historian, Wadid al-Khalidi, has referred to this as the master plan for the conquest of Palestine. And I think if you put Plan Dalet, D-A-L-E-T, in your search engine, you'll be able to find it and the various elements of it um, and and draw your own um, uh, conclusions. Um, so that is kind of the history up until 1948. As far as 1948 is concerned, I think it's important to um, emphasize that ethnic cleansing in order to be achieved requires significantly more than just expulsion because you know you can expel people from a territory um, but then if after the end of hostilities they return to their homes you haven't really achieved very much and um, the transfer committee understood this and therefore put forward proposals for legislation that would prevent dispossessed Palestinians who had made been been transformed into stateless refugees outside the borders of the new Israeli state, legislative proposals to prevent their return. And most importantly, over 450 Palestinian villages to raise them to the ground so that these people would have um, uh, nowhere to return to. So just in terms of um, the historical background, I think um, it's it's overwhelmingly clear that the concept of transfer, um, as it's known in Zionist parlance, lay at the very heart of mainstream Zionism and was never, um, uh, um, let's say, the preserve of the lunatic fringe. Um, and then we go beyond um, uh, 1948, and he'll, here I'll be brief because I, um, you may want to have some follow-up questions. But for example, in 1956, during the Suez crisis, when Israel, um, together with Egypt and France, uh, invaded, uh, sorry, together with Britain and France, invaded Egypt um, in an effort to overthrow uh, the regime of, uh, of Jamal Abdel Nasser, there were real fears that under cover of war, um, that Israel would seek to expel uh, those Palestinians who had remained within uh, the new Israeli state. In fact, it was a well-known massacre that many people interpret um, as an effort to terrorize the remaining Palestinians into fleeing, but ultimately they didn't. Um, and then 1967 is another very good example. In the Syrian Golan Heights, which was occupied by Israel in 1967, over 90% of the population of that territory was ethnically cleansed and just as in 1948, um, crucially prevented and prohibited from returning to their homes. In the West Bank and Gaza Strip, we had um, annexations in part of East Jerusalem. We had some instances that resembled um, uh, the activities of the new Israeli state in 1948. But most importantly, you began to see a whole series of administrative measures. Um, so, for example, you had, I think, something in the order of 200 to 250,000 Palestinians who were either outside um, the new boundaries of Israel and the occupied territories at the time of war or fled hostilities. Um, or left or were expelled for whatever reason. And then during the summer of 1967, within a month or two of the beginning of the occupation, um, the Israeli authorities conducted a detailed population census. And anyone who was not at that time present within the occupied territories and therefore not counted in the census would not be provided with an Israeli-issued identity card, and without this identity card, you lost the right of residency in your own home and homeland. So hundreds of thousands of, of Palestinians um, were dispossessed through this um, administrative measure. Thereafter, um, and people often forget that between 1967 and 1993, um, Palestinians could not leave the occupied territories without first obtaining an exit permit from the Israeli military government. The exit permit in and of itself 
um, was not particularly difficult to acquire, provided you didn't have um, uh, a record with the Israeli um, authorities, in which case then they would withhold an exit permit in order to exercise political pressure. But the important point here is these exit permits were valid for three years, and after those first three years could be renewed for an additional year for a maximum of three um, uh, additional years. Now, it, and, and if for any reason a Palestinian, let's say, went to the United States or the Soviet Union or wherever to pursue university studies, if that individual did, let's say, lost uh, the exit permit or did not renew it at the, on time, um, either because he was in a country where Israel didn't have diplomatic representation or because he couldn't afford the renewal fees or for any other reason, then that individual automatically lost their right of residency and could no longer return to their home and homeland. So um, uh, the population of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, in fact, did not recover its 1967 levels until the early 1980s. Um, that's that's how comprehensive and, and wide-ranging um, uh, this issue was. And, and um, there are all kinds of other um, uh, measures that Israel uh, took to uh, reduce the population of the occupied territories that I won't get into now. But basically to say that since the 1980s, transfer has very much been um, associated with the Israeli extreme right, people like Meir Kahana and now um, uh, Israel's finance minister, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, and Israel's national security minister, um, Itamad Ben-Gvir, who are indeed of, of the far right, of the extreme right. Um, and they're its loudest uh, proponents. But that, in my view, should not blind us to the view that they come from of their views perhaps expressed in exceptionally vulgar terms, draw upon a tradition that is that has always been very much at the heart of Zionism and later Israeli policy and ideology uh, from the very outset. So you're listening to Muin Rabani. Rabani is a specialist on Palestinian affairs the Israel-Palestinian conflict in the contemporary Middle East. We're talking today about a piece he did for Mondo Weiss about the longer history of Zionist proposals to ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip and beyond. We'll be opening up the phone lines at half past the hour at 608-256-2001 if you care to join with a question, a comment, an observation. Again, that number is 608-256-2001. Muin Rabani, I want to return back to Plan Dalit. Uh, go into that a little bit. What, what was that about? Well, um, Plan Dalit, uh, its initial draft was formulated, I believe, in the 1930s. Um, and it was subsequently finalized um, in, was it um, uh, 19, March of 1947 or 1948, perhaps. And there were, um, this was the third or fourth Israeli military plan. Um, you had Aleph, Bet, uh, Gimel, ABC uh, in Hebrew, and then um, Dalet. And each of these plans in the context of um, the subsequent um, UN resolution to partition uh, Palestine had a specific objective. So one of the plans um, had as its main objective to secure um, that territory which had been allocated to a Jewish state uh, by the UN partition plan. Um, and Plan Dalet, its main objective was to um, seize as much territory as possible outside the borders um, of, in other words, um, in those territories allocated to either the Arab state by the UN partition plan 
um, or the international zone, um, which was uh, primarily Jerusalem, because uh, the UN in its partition resolution, given um, the sensitivity and sanctity of Jerusalem, had decided that Jeruz Jerusalem should be allocated to neither the Arab nor um, the Jewish state, but should come under an international uh, regime. And so Plan Delet um, really sought to maximize the territorial gains of the Zionist movement um, uh, beyond the borders, again, that were allocated uh, to the Jewish state. And it had a bunch of military operations um, uh, as part of this plan. Um, and those related to specific territories, laying out the um, uh, priorities of, of these various operations. And if you read the plan, it becomes very clear that in the event that um, uh, Zionist or later Israeli military forces encounter any resistance, then they are to expel the entire population of that village or town um, beyond uh, the borders uh, of the Israeli state. And, you know, um, Plan Delet is, it is neither a secret nor some conspiracy theory. It's a real plan that was adopted in real time and implemented. Um, uh, and again, it's, it's available for anyone who wants to consult it and get a better idea and make up uh, their own minds um, with a simple um, uh, internet search. I want to come back to uh, the Nakba, the catastrophe, <clears throat> because you make a point of stating that it was a product of design. Um, yes. And there's been a lot of certainly Zionist mythology uh, in regard to what Palestinians call the Nakba, the displacement, mass expulsion at that time, 48. Yes. Well, um, I think it's important um, when we talk about the Nakba that we focus not on the sum total of Palestinians um, that were in Palestine at the time, but specifically on those Palestinians that um, were resident in territory that became part of the new Israeli state. And in terms of that population, um, uh, something along the lines of 80% of all Palestinians uh, who resided in Palestine in 1947 uh, were gone by 1950. Um, about 200,000 of them to the Gaza Strip, um, many others to the West Bank, uh, to Lebanon, uh, to Jordan, and uh, and to Syria, and in, in lesser numbers to Egypt and further afield. Um, and I use that term because um, one of the most comprehensive examinations of this question was done by um, one of Israel's leading historians named Benny Morris for his landmark study in 1988 entitled uh, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Question. It's a very detailed book. And what struck me is that there seems, there's, there, there is what many have noted to be quite a contradiction between the body of the book and its conclusions. In other words, um, in the book you read, for example, as I was saying earlier, that there was a transfer committee, that the transfer committee came up with detailed recommendations, that these recommendations were endorsed by David uh, Ben-Gurion and implemented. And he talks about you know, a variety of, of massacres and psychological warfare operations and expulsions and so on. But then he concludes that in effect, these were all individual incidents taken in the heat of battle. And therefore he characterizes in his, in the, the conclusion to his book that the birth of the Palestinian refugee question was a product of war and not of design. And what I tried to show with my um, much shorter and, and admittedly much less detailed article was that actually, if you look at the history of the concept of transfer in Zionist thought and in Zionist and Israeli practice becomes very clear that what happened in 1948 was a product of design and not primarily of war. Now, um, after 1948, of course, you began to see um, and, and to see all the justifications 
that Israel and its apologists uh, put out, not only for what happened in 1948, but for for not reversing it. In other words, these people had left, according, according to the narrative of the apologists, and now they don't have any right to return. Well, some of the main arguments used was that actually... Um, the Palestinians had been urged to flee Palestine in radio broadcasts that were issued by the surrounding Arab governments. Um, the reason being that they wanted these Palestinians out of the way because they were planning to intervene in Palestine and crush um, the nascent Israeli state. Well, as a matter of logic, it doesn't make sense, of course, because if you're planning to military intervene in a territory would you really want all the roads clogged up with refugees Um, but more importantly people who have looked into this question um, uh, first and foremost um, uh, the former irish uh, diplomat erskine childers who looked into this i think already in the 1950s or 1960s because um, uh, there was a record a monitoring station of of regional radio stations run by the British in Cyprus. And he looked at this in great detail. And he found that not only are there, with maybe one or two exceptions, no Arab radio broadcasts calling on the Palestinians to leave, but there were quite a few urging the Palestinians to stay put, either because they should remain in their homelands or because the intervening Arab military commanders were concerned um, that a large flow of refugees would make it impossible for them to um, uh, to intervene in Palestine. Um, another one is that people have presented this as a population um, exchange. They'll concede that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians left or arguably were even expelled from Palestine in 1948. But at the same time, um, hundreds of thousands of Jews from Arab lands, um, Arab Jews, ended up um, leaving or being forced out or expelled from uh, Arab governments. And that therefore, this should be seen as kind of um, uh, two, let's say, um, mutually reinforcing dynamics. And we just unfortunately need to accept that both of these things happened. Well, the fact of the matter is that this is very different from, for example, what happened in the Indian subcontinent at around the same time, or um, what happened between Greece and Turkey in the 1920s, as horrible as those things uh, were. Because what you have here is first, you have Israel's expulsion of the Palestinians, its ethnic cleansing in the 1940s. and Only thereafter do you begin to see um, the large-scale departure of Arab Jews and other Jews uh, from Arab lands, sometimes um, more than a decade uh, or two later. Um, Secondly, they were not comprehensively expelled. Um, And thirdly, um, that many of them left for reasons that had nothing to do with the question of Palestine. So if you go to... Algeria, for example, um, France had given all Algerian Jews French citizenship, and the main reason they left Algeria was as part of the decolonization of that country. So they were, in effect, caught up in a very different conflict. The hour goes by so quickly, and I want to get to uh, central questions about transfer uh, and Gaza today. Talk about that. That is, um, you've touched on transfer as a voluntary immigration historically, but it seems to be raised again that there's this encouragement of voluntary uh, immigration. Talk about that in the context of what Gaza has become. Well, so um, immediately after uh, the Hamas attacks on Israel of October 7th, Almost from the very outset, you began to see um, senior Israeli leaders and decision makers, and many others for that matter, saying um, that our response should 
ensure the removal of the popular, the transfer of Gaza's Palestinian population to um, uh, the Sinai Desert, to Egypt. And, and this, in fact, is um, thinning out the population of the Gaza Strip, as it's called among Israeli policymakers. It has a very long pedigree because um, the population of Gaza for 75 to 80% consists of 1948 refugees and their descendants. And Israel has always been very uncomfortable with the idea of these hundreds of thousands, now several million people living on its boundaries um, within eyesight often of their former homes. Um, and so the idea emerged of, uh, or re-emerged of using um, uh, the extraordinary um, and unconditional US and European support that Israel received in the wake of, of uh, the attacks of October 7th to implement this proposal. And it was one that was embraced, in fact, by the United States. Anthony, U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, tried to market it um, to the Arab states on his first tour of the region. But it was categorically rejected by all the Arab states, including those most closely allied with Washington. Um, we can get into that separately later. But the point I want to make is that once this rejected, rejection was clear, an alternative proposal came, which is that the United States and the Europeans oppose mass force, force displacement of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip. And using that term leaves open the possibility of voluntary emigration. So the question to ask is, if you have an Israeli military campaign, um, which many are now characterizing as a genocide and which in fact um, will, is something that will begin to be judged by the International Court of Justice next week. So if on the one hand you have that and this campaign has destroyed something um, in excess of 60 or 70% of the housing stock, there's been a systematic attack on and destruction of the Gaza Strip's physical inf uh, civilian infrastructure on its economic viability to the extent that it ever had one and so on. And you then give these people an opportunity to leave. Is that really voluntary emigration or as Israel some Israelis are now calling it humanitarian emigration? Or is it mass force displacement um, by other means? In other words, they're not leaving at the point of a gun, um, but they're fleeing the seventh circle of hell. Again, we're listening to Muin Rabani. Uh, with he writes for his editor, co-editor of Jadalia, Ezine, and other venues. The, his writings appear. We're talking about uh, <clears throat> well. Uh, uh, again, we're talking about uh, transfer uh, as in what it means currently uh, in Gaza. Talk about the U.S. support for this, because clearly there seems to be, on occasion, at least the public face is some discouragement. Uh, but we've talked before, uh, and I've talked with other guests about um, the the Janus face of uh, uh, U.S. policy toward all of this. Well, I think that's very well put. Um, as as we were just discussing at the outset of um, the Israeli onslaught on the Gaza Strip after October 7th, the U.S. enthusiastically embraced the mass forcible transfer of the population of the Gaza Strip, effectively deporting them into the desert uh, in Sinai and uh, making them wards of the Egyptian state. Um, th when that was um, uh, categorically rebuffed, by Washington's Arab allies and client regimes, which should give you an uh, um, indication of the uh, strength and depth of feeling in the Arab world about this issue. The US changed its tune to opposing mass forcible displacement, but, but um, implicitly accepting voluntary emigration, which we've just discussed. And so the question becomes, um, how can you claim you oppose ethnic cleansing while at the same time you're giving Israel everything it needs um, to make it a reality. In other words, these people are being ethnically cleansed with U.S. weaponry by U.S. vetoes at the Security Council, 
um, by all forms of uncritical and unconditional and unqualified U.S. support. And there's another issue here, which is that um, just this week, um, when um, uh, these radical right extremists in, in Israel's government, the finance minister, national security minister, began um, uh, once again running their mouths. Uh, the finance minister said the population of the Gaza Strip needs to be reduced from 2.3 million to not more than one to 200,000, and, and the Jewish settlements need to be reestablished in the Gaza Strip and all the rest of it. Um, the State Department spokesman, and I think also the National Security Council uh, spokesman, came out and um, uh, rejected these statements. Well, if you're going to reject these statements when they're made by these far-right figures, why are you silent when they're made by the prime minister or by um, uh, senior leaders who are your closest partners or by um, uh, commanding officers of the Israeli military and so on? So there's a real disconnect, I think, here, on the one hand, between words and action, and on the other, about um, uh, you know finding positions by certain people objectionable, but finding them perfectly passable when the same sentiments are ex are expressed uh, by those uh, you cooperate with. So, what do you think the repercussions or effects uh, will be if this all takes place? Well, it also depends, I think, on how it takes place. In other words, um, will it take place um, as in 1940? Well, first of all, we I think it would be premature to say it will take place. But if we assume for the sake of argument that it will take place, it then depends very much on how it takes place. Will it be Palestinians being expelled into the Sinai Desert by Israel, um, or will it entail um, Palestinians being received into Egypt um, through um, the, the cooperation of the Egyptian government uh, with Israel? And if so, will they then be distributed in smaller numbers further afield um, uh, through cooperation between Israel Arab governments, Western governments, and perhaps others. Um, my belief is that if Egypt cooperates or is seen to cooperate with such a scheme, it could very well have um, shattering political implications for the stability of the Egyptian government akin to its overthrow in 1952 of, of the overthrow of the monarchy, in significant part because of its failures to prevent the Nakba of 1948. And there's just one other dimension I'll briefly refer to. Um, you know, um, 1948 may have been a successful exercise in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, but it did nothing to diminish the Palestinian struggle. It was simply within a decade resumed um, uh, from the surrounding countries, uh, initially from uh, Syria, um, then uh, Jordan, and then um, uh, Egypt, uh, sorry, Lebanon. So the idea that if you get rid of these Palestinians, you also get rid of the issues um, uh, that exist uh, is I think a bit of a pipe dream. Can you talk for a bit about the um, axis of resistance and how that's its origins and what, what what's that about currently? Well, the axis of resistance, as it calls itself, is a coalition of states and movements in the region um, uh, who are collectively opposed to uh, U.S.-Israeli hegemony in the region. And as part of that, um, also two um, uh, conservative Arab regimes that are aligned with um, the U.S. and Israel. Um, it consists of states, uh, primarily um, Iran and Syria, 
um, uh, movements, uh, the best known of which are Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, uh, Hamas in Palestine, and Ansar Allah, also known as the Houthis in Lebanon, uh, sorry, in Yemen, and then a number of other um, uh, groups such as the pro-Iranian uh, militias in Iraq um, and others in Syria. This is often presented as kind of a very tight knit, centrally uh, directed um, uh, coalition in which the decisions are made in Tehran and are implemented by others who effectively uh, function as um, uh, controlled proxies. But what we've seen is um, that in fact it's a much looser coalition who share common objectives and so on, but also maintain considerable autonomy uh, and independence in their decision-making and actions. So Hamas, which I think is in many ways been the least committed member of this coalition, um, did not closely coordinate its attacks of October 7th with its uh, fellow coalition members. It appears not to even have informed them. Um, what we've seen since October 7th is that, for example, um, uh, Iran has not in any way um, uh, uh, become directly involved. So it falls a little short of a collective uh, defense pact. And we've seen Hezbollah, for example, actively engaging um, Israel militarily, but in, a, in what many have described as controlled escalation, in other words, short of full-scale war. Then the Ansarullah and Yemen have um, attacked Israeli and, and Israeli shipping and shipping destined for Israel in, in the Bab al-Mandab. So I think it's useful to, to see this axis of resistance as a coalition that has um, common objectives, um, uh, shares common views in many cases, uh, but and can act collectively, but is, I mean, it's by no means um, a Warsaw Pact uh, or NATO uh, where um, members are formally committed uh, to acting at the direction of a, of a central leadership. You know, as, as we get toward the end of the hour, I want to switch gears a little bit. I'm wondering uh, if you can share some of your observations about what's been going on domestically here in, in the U.S. and in places like Germany, uh, attempt to squelch or, or tamp down uh, any uh, solidarity, really, uh, with the Palestine, Palestinian movement, uh, veiled in, in some large part by charges of anti-Semitism? Well, um, again, I, I, you know, I guess the good news is that it clearly demonstrates that Israel is losing the argument and that when the evidence is laid out in the court of public opinion, um, Israel's actions are seen for what they are and are facing extraordinary difficulty in um, obtaining the support of uh, fair-minded people. So, and I think this is in significant part also a result of the easier access that you have um, to media. I mean, it's, you know, we're no longer in a world where all you have is two or three terrestrial television stations that have two or three news reports uh, a day. Um, and those are the only views you're exposed to. You can now get news live from multiple perspectives from anywhere in the world. And so if you can no longer win an argument, well, then you try to suppress the debate. Um, and I think that's what we've been seeing in a very widespread and, and systematic uh, form, particularly, I think, in uh, Germany, where you now have this absurd situation of the German state, of all, of all places, accusing Jews of anti-Semitism because they don't support Israel. Um, and so um, there's, there's this attempt at suppressing the debate. There is attempts to delegitimize um, those who aren't towing uh, the party line, to delegitimize them, to demonize them, and in some cases even um, uh, to criminalize them. Um, and then you had, for example, this absurd uh, um, incident in the U.S. Congress where um, U.S. university 
um, presidents who demurred on characterizing intifada, an Arab word which means uprising, as a call to genocide, are now having to resign their jobs. Um, something that didn't even happen during the McCarthy years. So um, it really has become a very Kafkaesque and surreal um, uh, reality. Again, um, the, the, the basis of which is a determination to suppress a debate um, because you can't win an argument, because the evidence is that overwhelming. I want to stay with this a little bit further. We have a few minutes. Um, that is, of course, Madison, where we're broadcasting from, is a, a university town with a, a deep tradition of dissent and, and activism around both national and international uh, questions. Why the, in your estimation, why the focus on the universities? Uh, uh, one obvious thing is that they have been centers of activism. Uh, and young people aren't towing the line as they, uh, as as is expected. But I'm wondering if you have a take on that as well. Well, there was a recent article in the New York Times that has compared um, the current uh, discussion and debate um, about uh, Gaza to um, a similar um, protest and debate that took place during the Vietnam War. In, in the 1960s and early 1970s, and also identified university campuses now as then um, as key arenas for this uh, discussion and debate. So if you accept that premise um, and you are indeed out to suppress discussion and debate to ensure that the argument that you're going to lose because of the overwhelming evidence uh, isn't held in the first place, well, then university campuses are a very good place to start. And we have seen student groups uh, getting banned, again, using spurious allegations of, 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 of anti-Semitism and support for genocide and whatnot, even though in many cases they're actually opposing um, uh, genocide. But I think... Um, U.S. university campuses, in sharp contrast to the situation um, two or three or four decades ago, um, that the pro-Israeli perspective is no longer considered particularly serious, a serious point of view in many of these places. It used to enjoy more or less unbridled hegemony. Now it's very much a minority uh, position. So I think the leading role played by students at university campuses explains um, the effort to suppress uh, free speech in these in these places. I um, I've been trying to do a little writing on it upon on this question myself, and uh, what keeps popping into mind is a kind of a, a neo McCarthyism, a, a kind of t especially with these congressional hearings and so on. Yeah, I think that's very well put. Yeah. Well, we haven't had any callers, and usually we we get some. I. I I think I'll wonder about it in, in terms of people listening, taking it in as as happens on occasion. What next, Muin Rabani? What are you working on and what do you see as positive or even negative on the horizon that uh, we haven't perhaps touched on? Well, maybe to continue on, on, on this um, issue uh, that you just raised, um, I was in fact uh, recently invited um, to participate in a um, policy slash uh, academic workshop in Berlin, in Germany. And although I have very high regard for the individual that invited me, I felt uh, obliged to decline um, the invitation. Um, uh, and the reason is precisely these issues that we've, that we've been um, discussing. So, you know, um, uh, we have the well-known example of Masha Gessen, um, the writer who was disinvited from uh, receiving an award in Germany um, because Gessen had published a piece um, describing Gaza as a ghetto and pointing out that the ghetto is now being liquidated. Well, just two days ago, um, an Israeli minister um, referred to Gaza as a ghetto 
And in fact, um, the U.S. Uh, filmmaker, Joan Mandel, already in the 1980s produced a documentary, which I very highly recommend, called Gaza uh, Ghetto. Um, but I pointed out, you know, I'm not an international public figure like Masha Gessen. And if um, the thought police were to go through uh, the list of invitees to this workshop, um, and given that I've said very many similar things, ensure that I'm disinvited, I would not be in a position to defend myself and the international media will not flock to me to get uh, my side of the story. In other words, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not of sufficient importance to justify the potential headache. And I gave an example of um, I was participating in a public forum in Berlin in 2011, just after... Um, uh, the NATO intervention in Libya began. And during my remarks, I questioned the wisdom of, uh, of, of the attack on Libya. An audience member accused me of being an apologist for genocide for having done so. I, of course, disagreed. But at the end of the day, I had my say. The audience member had hers. And that was the end of it. And I asked, well, what would happen now if I were to make a similar accusation against someone defending Israeli policy, um, who knows? And I, again, um, I didn't consider this to be of uh, sufficient importance to follow up. Well, we're right at the end of the hour. Muin uh, Rabani, I want to thank you, of course, for being on with us once again. And uh, I like... Uh, I like the fact that we had you on early on, and now you're you're you, you've become in demand. I see in various quarters. So, well, uh, but that's not has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the kind of work you're you're doing. And so, I want to thank you uh, once again. You've been listening to Muin Rabani, specialist in Palestinian affairs, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the contemporary Middle East. Uh, I want to thank. Jack for engineering. I want to thank Jade for producing. And Moon, did you have a? Did you have well, some? I just wanted to thank you and your uh, colleagues. It's always a pleasure to be on your program. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I appreciate it because sometimes being at the mic, you wonder if anybody's catching this. This well, part of the project we do here at WORT of putting forward alternative visions, views, uh, ideas. So again, thank you once again. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. No, I won't be speaking with you next week. I'm going away for a few days. <laughs> but thank you anyway.